Let's go ahead and open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. We're going to be working through verses 6 through 15 today. I've titled this morning's teaching, The Freedom Found in Christ, Part 1. That means that we're going to do Part 2 next week. If I were going to cover what I believe is sort of an encapsulated section, we would do verses 6 down through verse 23, but that's too much for us to cover this morning. So I'm going to cover the first two part, the first two um, points of that passage this week, and then I'll cover the third one next week. That's okay with you folks. But let's go ahead and just read Colossians 2, 6 through 15. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of death consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through it. One of the great themes found in the scriptures is the theme of freedom. And it's actually repeated in various forms. One form is the freedom from oppression. And we see that in places like the Exodus from Egypt. We see it when God returned Israel to the land after they had been taken captive in Babylon. We even see it at the end of time where God will ultimately conquer the nations and there will be no more oppression from world governments and other things. And so there's this theme of the freedom of oppression brought about in the Old and the New Testament. Another form of freedom that's revealed in the scriptures is the freedom from sin. Think about John chapter 8 verses 34 through 36 where we hear Jesus say, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does, however, remain. And he says this, So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. And Jesus was talking there about freedom from the power of sin. Now there's another form of freedom, and it's going to be the topic of what we're going to address here. We also see this primarily, however, in the New Testament. And it's this idea of freedom from the yoke of religion. Freedom from the yoke of religion. You may remember after the Gentiles had started responding to the gospel in the book of Acts, there were some Jewish believers who would come down and start demanding that they obey the Old Testament law. But Peter actually refers to that as a yoke. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. We're going to jump down into verse 26. 
This is Paul, Barnabas, traveling. And we we see here in verse 26, For there they sailed on to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. When they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all the things that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they spent a long time with the disciples. You would think this would be an exciting time and all the Jews would open their arms up wide, right? Well, verse 1 of chapter 15, Some men came down from Judea, these are Jews, and began teaching the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem and the apostles and the elders concerning this issue. In other words, Paul could not convince them otherwise. And so they demanded that Paul go up to Jerusalem and talk to the big boys. Talk to the apostles up there. Certainly the apostles would agree with these Jews, because they were all Jews, the, the apostles, and so certainly they would agree that These Gentiles have to now submit themselves to the Old Testament laws. Verse 3, Therefore, being sent away, or being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees, and these are likely here saved Pharisees, those that were within the church, who had believed, it says, stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. After, they had, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. So all the people kept silent and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And so what Peter does here is he associates having to obey the Old Testament laws, and he's talking probably about ceremonial laws and other things, not moral laws, but the ceremonial laws. He's saying to require the Gentiles to now submit themselves to that after having come to faith in Jesus Christ, he likens to a yoke put around their neck. A burden. I mean, you would put a yoke on a beast so that he could pull a heavy load. What Peter is talking here is, again, what I would refer to as the yoke of religion. Those rules and those regulations that make up religion. And it's clear in this context here that Peter says that's unnecessary. It's not only unnecessary, it is a burden that shouldn't have to be borne by them because even the Jews themselves could not bear the yoke of the Old Testament law. They were saved by faith. Paul addressed something similar in Galatians chapter 3. Why don't you turn there with me? Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse 23. Before faith came, we were kept under custody, under the law. 
being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now faith has, or now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. And so Paul, instead of using the word yoke, he refers to it as being a tutor. There's these rules, these regulations, these boundaries, and it's all designed to lead us to faith in Christ. Much like with our own kids, you think about raising your kids, when they're very, very young and they don't have the ability in and of themselves to always determine right from wrong, we put a burden on them. We put a yoke on them in some respects. We put a harness on them to keep them within certain boundaries. We come up with rules, do not touch, do not do this, do not do this. Why? We're trying to lead them to the point where they can start to make decisions on their own and use their conscience to be able to make decisions that are right or wrong. And so Paul uses some very similar language. And I want you to stay in Colossians there because we're going to be coming back to that here. But what these passages actually reveal is that the Christian life is to be lived by faith in Christ, not by rules and regulations of some religious system. That's the point. Jesus has freed us from the yoke of religion, but unfortunately not all Christians have gotten the memo. Many still choose to submit themselves to decrees and to rules and to rights and to practices, all thinking that somehow they can earn God's favor or grace through those things, but that's not what the scriptures teach us. We have been freed from living our lives under a yoke of religion. It's nothing new. In fact, two of Paul's letters address this very specifically. One of them is Colossians, which we're going to be dealing with this morning. But the other is Galatians. The book or the letter of Galatians was written specifically because the Galatians had made the decision to now subject themselves to legalistic law-based or rule-based living. They had abandoned living their life in Christ purely by faith and trust in Him and instead began to rely upon rules and regulations, many of them from the Old Testament. Look at Galatians chapter 1. Paul uses a much harsher tone with the Galatians probably because the Galatians had gone further down that path. If you remember, the Colossians were sort of on the cusp. They were being challenged to start doing these things but hadn't quite crossed over into rule-based or religion-based living. The Galatians had made that transition, and so Paul was much harsher with them. Listen to the language he uses, chapter 1 of Galatians, verses 6 and 7. He starts off right out of the gate. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him, Christ, who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Their rule-based living was no longer the gospel. It was something different. Jump over to chapter 3, verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. They had been bewitched, deluded, led astray. Jump down into verse 4. I'm sorry, chapter 4. We'll start at verse 8. However, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those by which nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored for you in vain. Jump down to chapter 5. It was for freedom, verse 1, that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. He's talking there about the the yoke 
of religion. Behold, I say, Paul, to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ is of no benefit to you. But I testify again to every man who receives circumcision, meaning submission to the law there, that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of Righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the faith? Paul had some harsh words for them falling back into this pattern of living their lives by religion. This yoke of religion. I would propose this morning that many Christians, whether they're willing to admit it or not, struggle with the same issue today. Some claim that Jesus is sufficient for salvation, but they still seek God's grace through liturgical practices, sacramental systems. We talked about Hank Hanegraaff a couple weeks ago. Hank would say, well, Jesus is sufficient, but all these other things are needed for perfection and for growth and for maturity, all these rules and religious practices and rites and sacraments. Others believe that they can gain God's favor right out of the gate by living their lives under these strict rules. Still others seek a deeper, more, I'll say, mystical religious experience. Yes, I believe in Jesus, but I want something more. I talked about Sarah Young and her desire for more. She wanted that mystical experience. And they do that through doctrines and then disciplines of spiritual formation and other things. I was looking into different counseling methods and practices and opportunities around the state of Ohio. And I was looking at something that somebody recommended from up north. And it was interesting because much of what I had read and listened to about, it's associated with Ashland Seminary. It's a counseling ministry. And um, they follow what's called an integrationist approach. And um, they talk a lot about the need for faith in Christ. And and they, they kept anchoring back to Christ. And it all sounds very good until I started listening to some videos by individuals that were talking about the way to sort of make all that work. In other words, you start with faith in Christ, but then you have to get involved with, and one of the things they talked about was breath prayer, which is where you breathe in and you repeat a verse, part of a verse, the first half, and then you breathe out and you repeat the second half. Okay, think to myself, they're repeating scripture, but then they went on to describe how the reason for this is because you need to align your physical body with your spirit and you use breathing prayer to do that and then the the guy that the pastor that was doing that it was an hour-long message that i endured um made references to well we know this is a biblical practice because the early christians did it and then he cited that it was first heard about in the 15th century you know now my point is not to, to mock that as much as to say it's in addition to Christ. It doesn't come from Christ. It doesn't come from the scriptures. It's something that was in addition. And then he went off and listed four or five other practices that are necessary for healing. So he started with Christ, but then ends up ultimately with five things that were required. And even went on at one point to say, knowing the right thing and understanding the scriptures isn't enough because these practices are the only way to then rewire your brain. You cannot overcome things like depression and other things without doing these extra things. 
And that's where I began to struggle because I couldn't find much biblical basis for what he was saying. Now again, I believe in reciting scripture. I believe in meditating on scripture. I'm not even saying that there's anything necessarily wrong with stopping and breathing. <laughs> okay? There's some value in sort of stop. I'm going to just take some breaths, breathe. Okay? But to put it into some religious system that's now required for growth is where it begins to cross the biblical line. We're going to see today and next week that all of those things lead us away from the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. They ultimately will enslave us. We become slaves to those religious practices. So the outline for our passage today as we finally get into the guts of it here is threefold. To maintain our freedom in Christ, we must continue to walk in Him by faith and faith alone. Second is to maintain our freedom in Christ, we have to avoid being deceived to think that more is necessary. And then lastly, and that's what we'll get to next week, to maintain our freedom in Christ, we must reject all forms of legalism. And so Paul's going to do that because what Paul is trying to remind them of this morning in this text is that they have freedom in Christ now. They have been freed up from sin. They have been freed up from oppression. They have been freed up from the yoke of religion and religious practices. They have freedom in Christ. And it's important that they maintain that freedom. Otherwise, they'll end up like the Galatians who had enslaved themselves, Paul says, once again. So let's go ahead and break this down. To maintain our freedom in Christ, we have to continue to walk by faith in Christ. Look at chapter 2, verse 6 again. Notice he says this, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. That phrase, as you have received Christ, is important. Because it's referring back to how they had accepted Christ. Go back in chapter 1. Look at verses 3 through 8. We get an idea of how they accepted Christ, how they had received Him. Verses 3 through 8, he says, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as it has in all the world. It is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. What is the grace of God in truth? It's that we are saved by grace, not by works. It's purely by grace as a result of faith. That's the gospel, at least in a nutshell. And it says, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our fellow beloved bondservant, who was a faithful servant of Christ on your behalf. For he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. The thing we learn about how the, or how the Colossians came to know Christ, how they received him, was they received him by faith. They came to understand the, the, the true grace of God can only be secured by faith in Christ. And they learned it from Epaphras, who had spelled it out for them. It says that it had begun to multiply and grow within them and producing all kinds of fruit. That's how they had received Christ. And now, just like the Galatians, they were willing to abandon that for religious practices. And Paul says, No. Just as you received him, continue to walk that way. You know, it's interesting because when I came to faith in Jesus Christ, it was purely because I didn't want to go to hell. I remember 
Bob's sharing with me that God offers me his grace purely by faith. I came from a system that taught that I received God's grace through the sacraments. That's a form of works. That's a system I was in. It was a system that couldn't do it. Didn't do it for me. I was still lost. I came to faith in Christ and I placed my total, complete trust in him purely by faith. It wasn't until a little while later where I started to think, maybe I needed more. (laughs) You know, you hear the phrase, a dog returns to its vomit. I started struggling with my assurance of salvation. How do I keep my salvation? Because, again, I had been ingrained in that works-based thinking. I got to go to church to get my tank filled up. And so, but those first few weeks, I was convinced all that was necessary was faith in Christ. I began to struggle then a little bit later. And you know what resolved it for me? Going back to the beginning and saying, you know, I did nothing to receive this except faith in Christ. I can do nothing now to keep it. Plain and simple. And so Paul challenges them. He says, just as you have received Christ, continue to walk in him in that exact same way. They had received him by faith. They had placed their faith in Jesus Christ. It was that simple. And Paul says, you need to maintain that. Continue to do that. Now, as a result of their faith in Christ, Paul mentions four things that were true about them. Look at verse 7. He says, So walk in him, having been firmly rooted, and now being built up in him, and established in your faith, just as you were instructed, and overflowing with gratitude. These four things. The first thing here is they had been firmly rooted in him. Paul uses the perfect tense there, which implies something that happened in the past that was true today. They had been firmly rooted and continued to be firmly rooted in Christ. This is a horticultural Metaphor here, you're going to see Paul uses a number of metaphors here, refers to strong, healthy roots providing what a plant needs for stability. It receives what it needs to survive from the soil. Firmly firmly planted, If if a tree or a plant doesn't have firm roots, what happens? It dies, it topples over, and so he reminds them that because of your faith in Christ, one of the things that's true about you is you have been firmly rooted in him. Peter elsewhere says that everything we need for life and godliness is found in a proper understanding of God and his son Jesus Christ. We're firmly rooted in that. <clears throat> second thing he mentions about them, second thing that's true is that they were being built up in him. This is an architectural metaphor. Paul likes this particular metaphor. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Oftentimes, we in the church are referred to as buildings. Ephesians chapter 2. Jump down to verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints who are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And so Paul says that they have been built up. It refers to the ongoing work of God. You notice that it says they are being built up. The work's not complete yet. They are still being built up in Him. Third thing that Paul mentions here, 
is that they were being established in their faith, just as they had been instructed. In other words, just just as Epaphras had told you, you are being established in your faith. Now this is an interesting one because this word is actually a legal word. So Paul has used a horticultural metaphor, he's used an architectural metaphor, he's now using a legal metaphor. He basically, this word represents the idea of being confirmed in or verified in something. And so in essence what he is saying is, in Christ you have now been confirmed in the faith. You have been established in this faith. Verified. We're told elsewhere that we have been sealed. We are in the faith when we are in Christ. It brings to mind something that Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Just listen to this. Test yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Okay, so now look, look at all the things I do. Let's look at how many times I go to church. Let's look. Oh no, actually Paul says this. Don't you recognize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you. Unless, indeed, you failed the test. Paul's test for whether or not you are in the faith is, is Christ in you? That's it. If you are in Christ, if Christ is in you, that's the test. Not all of the religious hoops that you jump through. And yet, many Christians feel the need to have to evaluate whether or not They are pleasing God simply by a long list of religious rules, rites, and everything else. And I've met folks who, I tell you, look like they do all the right things, but are no more saved than a pagan. Because their faith is in the things they do, and when you look at their lives, there doesn't appear to be much faith. I grew up with a young man whose church was from a very strict Baptist background, similar to what we might refer to as independent Baptists, and they had all these rules. He could never go out to see a movie with us. His dad was very strict about certain things that they do and couldn't do, all because they were a Christian family. It was interesting, one time I was talking to him, I was sharing my faith with him. This was after I got out of college. And he looked at me and he said, you know, one of the struggles that I had always growing up was we had all these rules and regulations, things we couldn't do. We couldn't go see movies, we couldn't do this, we couldn't do that. But the funny thing is, we did them all at home. It's all for show. The test of whether or not we're in the faith is not the religious things we do, not the yoke we put on ourselves. It's whether we are in Christ. Have we placed our faith in Him and are we living by faith? Living just as Paul said, just as you received Him. The fourth thing that Paul says was true about them because of their faith in Christ is that they were overflowing with gratitude. Now, each of the first three participles there were all in the passive voice. What I mean by that is it reflects what God had done for them. He had rooted them in Christ. He had built them up into a building. He had established them or confirmed them in the faith. But now, this is their response. The last participle is simply this. They were overflowing with gratitude as a response. That's one of the signs of faith in Christ. The gratitude, realizing I have been saved by God's grace, not by my own works. I think about that repeatedly because I'm not worthy of the salvation that he's given to me because I certainly didn't deserve it. I still think about how God chased the one. The one sheep was me. I'm grateful for that. I overflow with gratitude because of that. If I had come to faith in Christ because of the things that I did, I couldn't be overflowing right now with gratitude because I would recognize how much I fail continually. What's our takeaway from this first small chunk here? I would say first, I'm going to give you two of them. First is, to walk in Him means that we continue to walk by faith just as we received Him. We came to Him by faith. We must therefore continue to walk by 
faith and faith alone. The rules don't change after we get saved. Paul says something elsewhere about the Galatians. He's like, you started by faith. Are you so crazy to think, paraphrase, are you so crazy to think you can finish by works? That's a bold statement. You started by faith. What makes you think you now have to finish by works of religion? It doesn't work that way. You start by faith, you continue by faith. Plain and simple. The second thing is to walk in Him means that we continue to walk in the full conviction of the four things that Paul just described to us. We are firmly rooted in Him because of faith. We are being built up in Him because of faith. We are being verified, established in Him, confirmed in Him because of our faith. And as a result, we should be overflowing with gratitude. So the bottom line is that to maintain our freedom in Christ, one of the things that's required is that we continue to walk by faith. If we choose instead another path, much like the Galatians had, to subject ourselves to all of these rules and regulations, now we're just putting a yoke of religion on our shoulders. We no longer are free in Christ. Paul's second point is that to maintain our freedom in Christ, we have to avoid being deceived. And by this, he's going to mean deceived about what we truly have in Christ. He warns the Colossians about losing their freedom by being take, taken captive, he says here, by philosophy and empty deception. Look at verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. It's kind of interesting because when you look at that, he's not talking about two things. He's taking these two words and combining them together to come up with this principle. What he's really talking about here is the idea of deceitful or empty philosophy. Not all philosophy is bad. Not all philosophy is wrong. Philosophy is just simply the study of knowledge. It's really what it is. And so we have good Christian philosophers whose philosophy is based on what's in the scriptures, the knowledge from the scriptures. So Paul's not saying here, never look at philosophy. He's basically tying philosophy and empty deception together to talk about philosophy that is empty and deceitful. And there's plenty of that. In fact, there's plenty of that within the church. Paul warns the Colossians not to be taken captive by this type of philosophy because of where it's based. The source. Look at what he says. According to... <coughs> excuse me. Uh, should we jump down into verse, uh, verse 8 there? He says, According to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. What are the traditions of men? Paul doesn't state specifically what these traditions were, but in Matthew chapter 7, verse 8, the same phrase is used to refer to the teachings and the practices espoused by the, or by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Similar language was used within Greek cultures to refer to philosophical teachings that have been passed down from generation to generation, teacher to teacher. That's what Paul's referring to. These man-made religious rules that you might find within Judaism and even Greek religion, but also the philosophical beliefs and things that have been passed down from generation to generation. They're man-made. What about elementary principles of the world? This is a more challenging one because there's not a whole lot of consensus on exactly what that refers to. Some of your translations, New American Standard, LSB, King James, believe that it refers to these basic elementary principles of the world that are observed through human observation. And that's a valid translation or a valid understanding of that. That what Paul is referring to is philosophy that's based on human observation of just the principles you see. So for instance, we can make certain observations about human behavior, can we not? 
Okay? But it's just human observation. It gets a little challenging when we try to assign meaning to it or what causes it. We see this all the time in secular psychiatry or psychology where, you know, oh, you're manic depressive and they're going to tie it to, well, you must have been, you know, abused as a child or you must have had a, you know, genetic defect in your brain or a chemical imbalance. Those are observations and some things can be tested, some things cannot, and some of them may be valid observations, some of them might not be valid, but they're elementary principles. And so it could be that Paul is referring to that, that these, this philosophy, this empty deception was based on such human observations. I have a statement I use oftentimes. Humans observing fallen human nature oftentimes arrive at fallen human ideas, right? And so that could be partly what Paul is talking about here. But another possibility is what you see in translations like the NET or the ESV, which is that it refers to the demonic spirits or forces of the world. In other words, elementary principalities and things like that. And to be real honest, that's probably the more common understanding of this in most of the evangelical literature from scholars and commentaries. I don't have a particular opinion on it. Because whether it's specifically referring to observation of elementary principles, or whether it's things that are, as Paul says in 1 Timothy, doctrines of demons... Either way, it's bad. Either way, if your religious practices are based on those things, it's bad. Okay? So Paul's point is made. So when philosophy is based on those things, traditions of men, human observation, or demonic spirits, there's a problem. And the reason is, look at what he says at the very end of verse 8. Rather than according to Christ. Now, one way to interpret that is that it's opposed to Christ. Which is true. If these things are opposed to Christ... It's empty philosophy and it's deceitful. Okay? But to say that something is not according to Christ can also mean that it is not drawn from or sourced in Christ. And that, I think, is the more important thing here. I had a conversation with somebody recently. We were talking about, um, again, it comes to, um, comes to how we counsel and the things that we share and the things that we hold on to and the places that we find our solutions to problems in life. And there's different approaches to that. One approach is what I'm going to call an integrationist approach, which is that, well, um, we have the Bible, and then we have all these other things we've just learned over time through observation and other things. Okay? Some of which may be true, some of which may not be true. Okay? Another, and then that group will kind of mix those things together and see equal value in both, okay? And then there's another school of thought, which is a school of thought I'm more comfortable with myself, which is that I want to draw all the principles I can out of the scripture and use that. It doesn't mean that, again, everything over here is invalid. I just don't know that I can trust everything that's over here, but I know that I can trust what's over here. And so... The, the principles that I was sharing was I gave some examples of a particular counselor and I said, he believes this and he believes this. And I don't necessarily have a problem with, with this. I don't even know that it's necessarily anti-biblical or against Christ. However, I don't know if it's true. I don't have a way to evaluate it. But there's another principle over here that really would accomplish the same thing and I can find something comparable actually here that I can trust. So one is according to or drawn out from Christ. That ultimately is where our stuff should be. 
So my point is, according to what Paul is saying here, is that he doesn't want them to be deceived, led astray by philosophy and empty deceit that is based in man-made traditions or the observation of elementary principles or worse yet, demonic forces. And it's not come out of Christ. It's not according to Christ. He wants them instead to have their practices be according to what Christ taught and what's found in Christ. Those are the things we ought to do. So what should our focus be? Open the book and do what Christ says to do. If Christ didn't say to do it, then you don't have to do it. Plain and simple. That's why they didn't have to obey the Old Testament food laws anymore. Christ didn't instruct us to do that. We have been freed from that. We were under a tutor. We're no longer under a tutor. That's why Peter was able to say about the Gentiles, you know what? Guys, we couldn't wear that yoke. We can't expect them to wear the yoke. Christ didn't instruct us to wear that yoke. Now, Christ did tell us to do things like love God, love our neighbor, not commit adultery. Old Testament moral laws. We're not saying just throw those out the door. What we're talking about are those ceremonial things we do as, as people. So, to counteract this philosophy, this empty deception here that Paul talked about, Paul gives some insight. Now these next few verses, verses 9 through 15, are jam-packed with theology. We could spend a week on every verse, I mean every phrase practically. I'm not going to do that, I don't want to be here until I'm 70. I want to cover the high points, if you will. Okay? Kind of summarize what Paul does here. So again, there's tons of theology here. We're not going to answer all of your questions. We're going to stick with the high points. And if I could summarize this next chunk of verses, it's that Paul is going to now deal with the all-sufficiency of Christ. Why is it that our faith in Christ alone is all we need without all the other religious practices that we sometimes sense or think we have to jump through the hoops or other things? It's because Christ is all-sufficient. And so he's going to talk to us about that. Now look at, I don't know how many of these I have, maybe four or five. Look at uh, verses 9 through 10. Verses 9 through 10. For in him, and I want, here's what I want you to do as we do this. Pay attention a number of times you see in him, in whom, with him. Okay? In fact, maybe read through the passage when you get home and just count the number of times up that he does that. It builds a cadence. In him, in him, with him, with him, through him, through him. It just builds this great cadence. So look at the first thing that he says here. Verses 9 through 10. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. What's the first point here? We have been made complete in Christ. That's why faith in Christ is alone. We have been made complete in Christ. To say that all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form in Christ means, very simply, Christ is fully God and fully man. He is deity in the flesh. John chapter 1, verse 1, we all know it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, I'm sorry, the Word was God, and the Word was with God. But then it goes down, what, verse 18 or so, 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. All the fullness of deity, all the fullness of God dwells in Jesus Christ in bodily form because He is God. And because of that, it says, since we are in Him, we have been made complete. Paul does this interesting word play here. Um, Notice some of your translations may say we have been filled in Him or filled up in Him. That's a word play on that word full. 
In him all the fullness of deity dwells, dwells, and in him you have been filled up. Little word play there. In In essence, what he is getting at here is that we have been filled up. We have been made complete, made full in Christ because we have become partakers of God's nature. We've talked about that before. Jump to Hebrews with me. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Now, jump to chapter 6, verse 4. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. Then we jump over to 2 Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter one verse four. For by grace, or I'm sorry, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. It's interesting about that to me. Is we have we become partakers of Christ, we become partakers of the Holy Spirit, we become partakers of the divine nature. Do you think there's a theme there? Jump back to Colossians. The first thing that Paul reminds him of here is that they have been made complete. They've been filled up. They have become partakers of the divine nature. There's nothing more that they need, if you will, to perfect them. So jumping through the hoops, thinking that they have to go through some form of religious rituals or practices or celebrations to somehow finish the job, there's nothing to finish. Now, he's talking here positionally, meaning sort of that already-not-yet syndrome. We have been made complete. We don't always act like it. So now, sit down, shut up, and act like it. That's what we're told in the scriptures. Maybe not in such harsh language. But the reality of it is, positionally, we are complete in Christ. We're part of the divine nature. Someday we'll fully realize that. But jumping through the hoops today doesn't make, it any, doesn't make us any more complete. The second thing he says here is that we've been circumcised and crucified. So circumcised in and crucified with. Look at verse 11, back in Colossians chapter 2. And in him, there's that phrase again, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. God promised Israel in the Old Testament that a time would come when he would circumcise their hard hearts so that they could now love him with their heart, soul, mind, and strength. But what it would take would be God circumcising their heart. You know what circumcision is, removing of the foreskin. It's described in both the Old and the New Testaments, ultimately in a metaphorical sense, of circumcising the heart, taking the hard, callous heart and stripping away that dead flesh. It's what makes it possible for us to love the Lord from our heart. Otherwise, our heart is bent on wickedness. It wants to push back against God. But when he circumcises that heart, removes that hardness, then it's a heart that desires to serve to love, to honor, and to obey Him. It says that it involves the removal of the body of flesh. That's kind of an interesting picture. In Romans chapter 2, verse 29, Paul refer, or sort of refers to this circumcision of the heart, but he also ends up in Romans 6 tying it to our crucifixion with Christ. Turn to Romans chapter 6. So these two ideas of being circumcised and being crucified in Christ go hand in hand. Romans chapter 6, verse 
4 through 6. Paul says, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self, that's a reference to our old sinful behavior, life, that old man, if you will, was crucified with him in order that our body of sin, here he refers to his body of sin, might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is free from sin. And so when you combine these passages here, what you find is that we have been circumcised and we have been crucified with Christ so that our old man is now dead. Now again, it's an already not yet, When Paul is talking in Romans about his own struggle with sin, he basically says this, It's not I who sin, it's sin that dwells within me. That's an interesting statement. In essence, what Paul is saying, and it's something that we see throughout the scriptures, when we come to Christ, we are now saints. But we still have a tendency to sin. (laughs) It is the already, not yet. But Paul tells us here that our body of flesh, our body of sin, that old man has been crucified, he's been circumcised. Again, there's nothing they can do to fix... It's already been done. We are now told that we don't have to be slaves to sin any longer. We can choose to be, but we don't have to be. We've been freed up because that old man has been put on a cross with Christ. third thing he goes on to say is that we've been baptized and made alive together with Christ. Look at verses 2 through 14. I'm sorry, 12 and 14. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of death consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So we've been baptized and made alive with Christ. Baptism in the New Testament symbolizes new life in Christ. Remember when Peter at Pentecost, when they asked, what must we do to be saved? And he says, repent, be baptized. Repentance is a turning away from that old lifestyle. It's a change of the mind, literally, is what it means. So he basically says, change your mind, turn away from those things, and instead, be baptized, which was an expression of following Jesus Christ, committing one's life to Christ. It was an expression of one having new life, being raised up with Christ. So we've not only been buried with Christ, through baptism of the Holy Spirit, we've also been raised up with Him from the dead, and we're told now that we have been made alive in Him. We can't make ourselves any more alive by taking the sacraments, or fasting, or doing anything that we think we need to do. Now, I'm not saying fasting is a bad thing. But if we do it because we somehow think it will make us more perfect in Christ, or that it will somehow... The reality of it is, Paul is saying, no. We were dead in our sins, he says, and we had this uncircumcised heart, and at that time Christ made us alive together with him. I love the way that he phrases this here, this idea of canceling out the certificate of death. We, we talked about this, I think, a couple of weeks ago, where this, in, in uh, the ancient Near East, they would handwrite. If you borrowed money from somebody, or if you purchased land and they had loaned you the money with the land, you would handwrite a note saying what you owed. And sometimes there was even written in there what the penalties would be if you didn't pay it back. That was a certificate of debt in the 
person who loaned you, loaned you the money or um, the person if you deposited your money somewhere and they wrote that to you, then you would hang on to it. Okay? And it says here that we had a debt or a certificate of debt like that because of our sin. But it says that Christ not only forgave us for our sins, but he took that certificate and he took it out of the way and then he destroyed it. He nailed it to the cross. You know, it's almost like, yeah, the, you know, it's been paid off, but it's still here. Remember, you owed me. No, it's now gone. It's completely eradicated. That's the concept of God tossing our sins as far as it is from the east and the west. He not only forgives them, he'll forget them. They were hostile towards us, and so they're completely taken out of the way. The last thing that Jesus says here, or that Paul says here, is that Jesus disarmed and put to shame the spiritual forces. Look at verse 15. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through, and then it says him in the New American Standard, but it's actually the Greek word that's used there can be either him or it. And the laws of hermeneutics would suggest that we should translate that as it, referring back to the cross. Either way, makes sense, but more technically probably that Jesus has triumphed over the dark spiritual forces through the cross. Now the last verse here is a little bit different um, because rather than speaking about what we have in Christ, it speaks of Christ himself disarming, triumphing, and ruling over the authorities. Um, But in some respects, we have too because we are now in Christ. The reason we have freedom from such things Elsewhere, the scriptures make it clear that we were under bondage to the spiritual forces of darkness. But we are no longer under bondage to them. We've been freed up with them because Christ himself has triumphed over them and we are in him. Some of the NIV, or I'm sorry, some of the translations you'll see make do reference that as over the cross, but it all happened because of the cross. So what's our takeaway with all of this here then? Well... Obviously, to maintain our freedom in Christ, we have to learn to continue to walk in Him in faith. That was already established, I believe. But here, to maintain our freedom we have in Christ, we have to avoid being deceived and hold tightly to the conviction that Jesus Christ is enough. He is all-sufficient. The Colossians were being deceived into thinking that they needed more than Jesus for whatever reason. Now, maybe... Maybe some of them were beginning, to, were beginning to think that faith in him wasn't quite enough to be saved. Maybe some of them had been convinced of that. Maybe they thought he was enough to be saved, but he wasn't enough to help them overcome temptation to sin. In fact, we're going to get into a passage a little bit later where they had certain food laws and they did certain things. Um, they fasted in some extreme way, thinking that it would help them overcome the sin of the flesh. And Paul says, does nothing to prevent that. So maybe that's what the Colossians are dealing with. Jesus is enough, but in order to now control this flesh, I have to, you know, do these strict religious things. Maybe they thought there was more to know about God. That seems to be some elements there that, well, yes, faith in Jesus, but there's more. I want that mystical experience. I want to feel and sense him with me. I'm not saying that's a bad thing to desire that, but when we engage in religious practices that are designed to manufacture such things. I mean, one of the problems I have with, um, you know, I've shared with you the books I've been reading on NAR, New Apostolic Reformation. It's a a form of hyper-Pentecostalism that is really all about the experiences. 
You go lay on the graves of the saints so you can soak up their anointing. You know, you, you basically go and you engage in this weird practice of waking up the angels so that maybe you can get a vision of an angel. And um, I've got a friend of mine who's engrossed in that stuff. Absolutely engrossed in that stuff. It's all about the experience. And so instead of just pursuing Christ, they pursue the experience. And as we'll see elsewhere in here, the experience has become the entrapment. The experience has become what enslaves us. So by abandoning their belief in the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ and pursuing such things, they were giving up the freedom that they had in Christ and making themselves slaves to those things. Especially some of the things, like I said, the severe treatment of the body that they were involved with. I don't know if you guys have ever tried to fast. (laughs) Not easy, you know. And if you make that your life, you become a slave to it. Especially when you think you have to do it in order to be right with Christ. Or in order to grow and mature in Christ. However, we're told that Jesus is sufficient, not just for salvation, but for everything we need. Um, We've been made complete in him. We've been circumcised in him. We've been crucified in him. We've been buried with him. We've been raised up with him. We've been made alive in him. And he's forgiven our sins, so we've been forgiven in him. He is all-sufficient. So, I think our giant takeaway from this, and we'll see this again next week, I'm not saying that we shouldn't do religious things, just to make that really clear. We celebrate certain religious holidays. We celebrate Christmas, you know? Um, We're going to see next week, I think it's next week, Paul fasted, Barnabas fasted, Jesus fasted, but they didn't fast somehow thinking they would gain something from Christ. They fasted when they were praying, to help make decisions sometimes. Probably to help focus their mind on what they were praying about. Okay, So I'm not saying that all religious experiences and expressions are bad. The problem is that the Colossians were using those things because they thought they needed to do those things. They thought those things were required somehow to enhance their relationship with Christ. But we don't find that anywhere in the scriptures. We can have religious practices. We can express certain things. But as we'll see again, I think it's next week, Jesus fasted, Paul fasted, Paul celebrated Pentecost out of his love and affection for Christ, not because he felt he was required to do those things to be in the right relationship with Christ. And there's a big difference between those two. When we start to do that, we give up the freedom we have in Christ. The great thing about being a believer is Paul says all things are permissible, but not all things are profitable. I had a discussion online the other day with somebody who had condemned other believers for drinking Diet Coke because they were destroying the temple because it's got aspartame in it. I, I don't like aspartame. I don't drink Diet Coke. Okay? But I kind of chimed in. I decided to poke the bear. And I just said, you know, it's interesting. I don't know that I see this anywhere in the scripture that we're supposed to condemn believers for what they eat. In fact, Paul says, let them eat what they want to eat. Everybody has to eat what they want. Just... But her shooting back, oh, but that was before we started putting poison in food. You know? But rules and regulations. And somehow now as believers we can't drink stuff that's got aspartame in it. Because now we're sinning. You get what I'm getting at? We have to live our lives by faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Christ alone because he is all sufficient. Not through rules and regulations that we somehow think we have to jump through. Amen?